Letter thirty nine of Clarissa, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Clarissa Harlowe, or the History of a Young Lady, Volume One, by Samuel Richardson. Letter thirty nine. Miss Clarissa Harlowe to Miss Howe, Monday, March twelfth. This letter will account to you, my dear, for my abrupt breaking off in the answer I was writing to yours of yesterday, and which, possibly, I shall not be able to finish and send you till to-morrow or next day, having a great deal to say to the subjects you put to me in it. What I am now to give you are the particulars of another effort made by my friends through the good Mrs. Norton. It seems they had sent to her yesterday to be here this day to take their instructions and to try what she could do with me. It would at least, I suppose they thought, have this effect, to render me inexcusable with her, or to let her see that there was no room for the expostulations she had often wanted to make in my favour to my mother. The declaration that my heart was free afforded them an argument to prove obstinacy and perverseness upon me, since it could be nothing else that governed me in my opposition to their wills if I had no particular esteem for another man, and now that I have given them reason, in order to obviate this argument, to suppose that I have a preference to another, they are resolved to carry their schemes into execution as soon as possible. And in order to do this they sent for this good woman, for whom they know I have even a filial regard. She found assembled my father and mother, my brother and sister, my two uncles, and my aunt Hervey. My brother acquainted her with all that had passed since he was last permitted to see me, with the contents of my letters avowing my regard for Mr. Lovelace, as they all interpreted them, with the substance of their answers to them, and with their resolutions. My mother spoke next, and delivered herself to this effect, as the good woman told me. After reciting how many times I had been indulged in my refusals of different men, and the pains she had taken with me, to induce me to oblige my whole family in one instance out of five or six, and my obstinacy upon it. "'Oh, my good Mrs. Norton,' said the dear lady, "'could you have thought that my Clarissa, and your Clarissa,' was capable of so determined an opposition to the will of parents so indulgent to her. But see what you can do with her. The matter is gone too far to be receded from on our parts. Her father had concluded everything with Mr. Solmes, not doubting her compliance. Such noble settlements, Mrs. Norton, and such advantages to the whole family! In short, she has it in her power to lay an obligation upon us all." Mr. Solmes, knowing she has good principles, and hoping by his patience now, and good treatment hereafter, to engage her gratitude, and by degrees her love, is willing to overlook all. Overlook all, my dear, Mr. Solmes to overlook all, there's a word. So, Mrs. Norton, if you are convinced that it is a child's duty to submit to her parents' authority, in the most important point, as well as in the least, I beg you will try your influence over her. I have none, her father has none, her uncles neither, although it is her apparent interest to oblige us all, for, on that condition, her grandfather's estate is not half what, living and dying, is purposed to be done for her. If anybody can prevail with her, it is you, and I hope you will heartily enter upon this task. The good woman asked whether she was permitted to expostulate with them upon the occasion before she came up to me. My arrogant brother told her she was sent for to expostulate with his sister, and not with them. And this, Goody Norton, she is always Goody with him, you may tell her that the treaty with Mr. Solmes is concluded, and nothing but her compliance with her duty is wanting, 
of consequence that there is no room for your expostulation, or hers either. "'Be assured of this, Mrs. Norton,' said my father, in an angry tone, "'that we will not be baffled by her. We will not appear like fools in this matter, and as if we have no authority over our own daughter. We will not, in short, be bullied out of our child by a cursed rake, who had liked to have killed our only son.' and so she'd better make a merit of her obedience, for comply she shall, if I live, independent as she thinks my father's indiscreet bounty has made her of me, her father. Indeed, since that, she has never been like she was before. An unjust bequest, and it is likely to prosper accordingly. But if she marry that vile rake loveless, I will litigate every shilling with her, tell her so, and that the will may be set aside, and shall.' My uncles joined with equal heat. My brother was violent in his declarations. My sister put in with vehemence on the same side. My aunt Hervey was pleased to say there was no article so proper for parents to govern in as this of marriage, and it was very fit mine should be obliged. Thus instructed, the good woman came up to me. She told me all that had passed, and was very earnest with me to comply and so much justice did she to the task imposed upon her, that I more than once thought that her own opinion went with theirs. But when she saw what an immovable aversion I had to the man, she lamented with me their determined resolution, and then examined into the sincerity of my declaration, that I would gladly compound with them by living single. Of this being satisfied, she was so convinced that this offer, which, carried into execution, would exclude Lovelace effectually, ought to be accepted, that she would go down, although I told her it was what I had tended over and over to no purpose, and undertake to be guarantee for me on that score. She went accordingly, but soon returned in tears, being used harshly for urging this alternative. They had a right to my obedience upon their own terms, they said. My proposal was an artifice, only to gain time. Nothing but marrying Mr. Solmes should do. They had told me so before, they should not be at rest till it was done, for they knew what an interest Lovelace had in my heart. I had as good as owned it in my letters to my uncles and brother and sister, although I had most disingenuously declared otherwise to my mother. I depended, they said, upon their indulgence, and my own power over them. They would not have banished me from their presence if they had not known that their consideration for me was greater than mine for them. And they would be obeyed, or I never should be restored to their favour, let the consequence be what it would. My brother thought fit to tell the good woman that her whining nonsense did but harden me. There was a perverseness, he said, in female minds, a tragedy pride that would make a romantic young creature such a one as me risk anything to obtain pity. I was of an age, and a turn, the insolent said, to be fond of a lover-like distress, and my grief, which she pleaded, would never break my heart. I should sooner break that of the best and most indulgent of mothers. He added that she might once more go up to me, but that, if she prevailed not, he should suspect that the man they all hated had found a way to attach her to his interest. Everybody blamed him for this unworthy reflection, which greatly affected the good woman, but nevertheless he said, and nobody contradicted him, that if she could not prevail upon her sweet child, as it seems she had fondly called me, she had best draw to her own home, and there tarry till she was sent for, and so leave her sweet child to her father's management. Sure, nobody had ever so insolent, so hard-hearted a brother as I have. 
so much resignation to be expected from me, so much arrogance, and to so good a woman, and of so fine an understanding, to be allowed in him. She nevertheless told him that, however she might be ridiculed for speaking of the sweetness of my disposition, she must take upon herself to say that there never was a sweeter in the sex, and that she had ever found that by mild methods and gentleness I might at any time be prevailed upon, even in points against my own judgment and opinion. My aunt Hervey hereupon said it was worth while to consider what Mrs. Norton said, and that she had sometimes allowed herself to doubt whether I had been begun with by such methods as generous tempers are only to be influenced by, in cases where their hearts are supposed to be opposite to the will of their friends. She had both my brother and sister upon her for this. Who referred to my mother, whether she had not treated me with an indulgence that had hardly any example? My mother said she must own that no indulgence had been wanting from her, but she must needs say, and had often said it, that the reception I met with on my return from Miss Howe, and the manner in which the proposal of Mr. Solmes was made to me, which was such as left nothing to my choice, and before I had an opportunity to converse with him, were not what she had by any means approved of. She was silenced, you will guess by whom, with, My dear, my dear, you have ever something to say, something to palliate, for this rebel of a girl. Remember her treatment of you, of me. Remember that the wretch whom we so justly hate would not dare persist in his purposes, but for her encouragement of him, and obstinacy to us. Mrs. Norton, angrily to her, go up to her once more, and if you think gentleness will do, you have a commission to be gentle. If it will not, never make use of that plea again. Ay, my good woman, said my mother, try your force with her. My sister Harvey and I will go up to her, and bring her down in our hands, to receive her father's blessing, and assurances of everybody's love, if she will be prevailed upon, and, in that case, we will all love you the better for your good offices. She came up to me, and repeated all these passages with tears, but I told her that after what had passed between us, she could not hope to prevail upon me to comply with measures so wholly my brother's, and so much to my aversion. And then, folding me to her maternal bosom, I leave you, my dearest miss, said she, I leave you because I must, but let me beseech you to do nothing rashly, nothing in becoming your character. If all be true that is said, Mr. Lovelace cannot deserve you. If you can comply, remember it is your duty to comply. They take not, I own, the right method with so generous a spirit. But remember that there would not be any merit in your compliance if it were not to be against your own liking. Remember also what is expected from a character so extraordinary as yours. Remember it is in your power to unite or disunite your whole family for ever. Although it should at present be disagreeable to you to be thus compelled, your prudence, I dare say, when you consider the matter seriously, will enable you to get over all prejudices against the one, and all prepossessions in favour of the other. And then the obligation you will lay all your family under will be not only meritorious in you with regard to them, but in a few months very probably highly satisfactory as well as reputable to yourself. "'Consider, my dear Mrs. Norton,' said I, "'only consider that it is not a small thing that is insisted upon, not for a short duration. It is for my life.' Consider, too, that all this is owing to an overbearing brother who governs everybody. Consider how desirous I am to oblige them, if a single life, and breaking all correspondence with a the man they hate, because my brother hates him, will do it. I consider everything, my dearest miss, and, 
added to what I have said, do you only consider that if, by pursuing your own will, and rejecting theirs, you should be unhappy, you will be deprived of all that consolation which those have who have been directed by their parents, although the event prove not answerable to their wishes. I must go, repeated she. Your brother will say, and she wept, that I harden you by my whining nonsense. Tis indeed hard that so much regard should be paid to the humours of one child, and so little to the inclination of another. But let me repeat that it is your duty to acquiesce, if you can acquiesce. Your father has given your brother's schemes his sanction, and they are now his. Mr. Lovelace, I doubt, is not a man that will justify your choice so much as he will their dislike. It is easy to see that your brother has a view in discrediting you with all your friends, with your uncles in particular, but for that very reason you should comply, if possible, in order to disconcert his ungenerous measures. I will pray for you, and that is all I can do for you. I must now go down and make a report that you are resolved never to have Mr. Solmes. Must I? Consider, my dear Miss Clary, must I? Indeed you must. But of this I do assure you, that I will do nothing to disgrace the part you have had in my education. I will bear everything that shall be, short of forcing my hand into his, who never can have any share in my heart. I will try by patient duty, by humility, to overcome them. But death will I choose, in any shape, rather than that man." I dread to go down, said she, with so determined an answer. They will have no patience with me. But let me leave you with one observation, which I beg of you always to bear in mind. That persons of prudence and distinguished talents like yours seem to be sprinkled through the world to give credit, by their example, to religion and virtue. When such persons willfully err, how great must be the fault! How ungrateful to that God who blessed them with such talents! What a loss, likewise, to the world! What a wound to virtue! But this, I hope, will never be to be said of Miss Clarissa Harlowe. I could give her no answer but by my tears, and I thought, when she went away, the better half of my heart went with her. I listened to hear what reception she would meet with below, and found it was just such a one as she had apprehended. "'Will she, or will she not, be Mrs. Solmes?' "'None of your whining circumlocutions, Mrs. Norton,' you may guess who said this. "'Will she, or will she not, comply with her parents' will?' This cut short all she was going to say. "'If I must speak so briefly, Miss will sooner die than have—' "'Anybody but Lovelace,' interrupted my brother. "'This, madam, this, sir, is your meek daughter. This is Mrs. Norton's sweet child.' Well, Goody, you may return to your own habitation. I am empowered to forbid you to have any correspondence with this perverse girl for a month to come, as you value the favour of our whole family, or of any individual of it. And, saying this, uncontradicted by anybody, he himself showed her to the door, no doubt with all that air of cruel insult which the haughty rich can put on to the unhappy low who have not pleased them. So here, my dear Miss Howe, am I deprived of the advice of one of the most prudent and conscientious women in the world, were I to have ever so much occasion for it. I might indeed write, as I presume, under your cover, and receive her answers to what I should write. But should such a correspondence be charged upon her, I know she would not be guilty of a falsehood for the world, nor even of an equivocation. 
and should she own it after this prohibition, she would forfeit my mother's favour for ever. And in my dangerous fever some time ago, I engaged my mother to promise me that, if I died before I could do anything for the good woman, she would set her above want for the rest of her life. Should her eyes fail her, or sickness befall her, and she could not provide for herself, as she now so prettily does by her fine needleworks. What measures will they fall upon next? Will they not recede when they find that it must be a rooted antipathy and nothing else that could make a temper not naturally inflexible so sturdy? Adieu, my dear, be you happy. To know that it is in your power to be so is all that seems wanting to make you so. Clarissa Harlow End of letter 39